0: Well, welcome. Every now and again, you run into someone who's got a big brain and a very big picture on where the world is going, at least in the world of marketing. We have one of those characters here today. He's a hybrid Dutch-American, started his career at Unilever and is the co-founder or the founder, I should say, for the Institute for Real Growth. It's backed by a bunch of different companies, uh, including WPP, Kantar, the University of Oxford, the University of New York, Google and Facebook is in there as well. You were a keynote speaker last week, Mark, at the AANA uh, Reset Conference. One of the, I think, the standout presentations on just unpicking and unpacking where the hell the world of marketing is going, where growth is going, where business is going. So what's the problem with growth at the moment at a business level? And then we'll get to marketing. Welcome, by the way. Yeah,
1: quite an introduction. There's there's an introduction. (laughs) Thank you very much. But I appreciate being here and I appreciate the invitation. And you got it right the first time. I am indeed the co-founder of the Institute for Real Growth. I think. Everything in my life, uh, at least professionally, has been about uh, marketing leadership and the role of marketing in helping companies grow. Uh, To me, in fact, uh, right from the start, those two have been synonymous. I think a marketer's job is to create markets, uh, to create opportunities, to identify opportunities, to understand the needs of current customers, but also potential customers, and then identify a market segment for for the company to, to work towards, to deliver a solution, to innovate, and so forth. Somehow, that's been lost over time. So the uh, urgency for growth hasn't changed. In fact, it's probably more urgent than ever before for many companies. Um, but the role of marketing in helping drive growth seems to have been diluted. Uh, when we talk to CEOs and the peers of marketers, uh, there's a perception that over the last two decades, marketers have become... Uh, almost distracted by the bells and whistles, the shiny toys of digital. And uh, and I think we need to be really uh, clear and honest here. There has been, uh, a, you know, an incredible seismic change in what marketers are supposed to be able to do. If you just think uh, just 15 years back uh, and think of the new channels, the new metrics, the new partners, so much has changed. It's like in accounting, they figured out a new way to count. And it wasn't just marketers that wanted to go there. Everybody was pushing marketers because, of course, in this digital world, suddenly everything was measurable, which kind of appeals to the chip on the shoulder that every marketer has around the not knowing which half of my spend is effective versus the other. And so I think there's been a huge leap into that direction, and and, and rightfully so, because it's uh, an important part of spend these days. But with that, there's at least a perception, and I would say probably there's some truth to this, that marketers have been overly focused on the how to win part of their job. And what is been lacking, certainly in the the eyes of our colleagues, uh, the the business leaders, is the other part of the responsibility of marketing, which I would argue is the where to play. Where are we actually gonna build a market? And interestingly, that's where marketers typically engage with the rest of the organization. That's where marketers- Historically,
0: they've done that, you're saying? Well, when
1: you have a where to play discussion, then you have to talk to sales. You have to talk to strategy. You're working with the CEO on where's the company going to go. And what has actually happened with this whole, if you like, distraction around the, the new communication tool of digital, marketers have been seen to be sort of getting lost in that area. And, and now it's come full circle because digital was a communication channel first. We could push the message out. We could reach new people. But now in many areas, if you think about how Airbnb, for example, is disrupting the hospitality business or Uber is disrupting the transport business, the mobility business, now digital is actually creating discussions around what market are we in? What business are we in? And I think there's a lot of marketers that are, uh, frankly, uh, being caught a little bit with their pants down for lack of true business and commercial uh, acumen. And at the same time, there's a lot of marketers who just want to go there, want to lead there, but just uh, aren't being given the, the time of day by their colleagues to engage in those discussions.
0: And why is that? What is that, what is that perception and credibility issue that marketers have? Uh, is it because they're not playing there, like you say, or can they do it? Is the capabilities there, but they're not doing it? What's the blockage with the C-suite, with the executives, senior execs?
1: Well, w- remember, we're almost talking a whole generation of marketing leaders now. So if you're standing outside marketing and you're looking at the typical CMOs, I think today versus 20 years ago or 15 years ago, you're looking at people that sort of a community of marketing leaders where many of them are indeed comms people. Right. That's what they've been focusing on. So there's a, a diluted population, if you like, of chief marketing officers that um, some are traditional marketers. Some, I am sure, many, feel that creating markets is what they're in business for. But others are, quite frankly, communication leaders and perhaps, um, you know, it's better to just say that. Uh, what's interesting is that companies have, have experienced this and in many cases are turning away from this role and saying, well, then let's create a chief growth officer.
0: Which you have a problem with. You don't like the chief growth officer uh, uh, title.
1: No, 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 that's not true. I, uh, I, I think it's very clear in its title. I don't like the title. If it actually means chief marketing officer. Uh I think a chief marketing officer should be a chief growth officer. So I think it's a testimony to um, uh, somehow the job not being filled the way that the company was expecting. There's a lot of, of all functions, you mentioned the CFO. No one argues about what the scope and the role of a CFO is. We all know. Even we as marketers know. But when you get to the role of the marketer and you start asking colleagues, what exactly is the scope of that role? there's a lot of ambivalence. And so that's the first source of all this tenure issues that you have in marketing, that a lot of CMOs are working on a job description that actually isn't fully aligned with even their boss and certainly not with their colleagues. I want to get to how you define markets. You have some great examples of
0: how a company pulls back and looks at the market it's playing in. We'll get there in a second. But just on as an aside, around for a long time, 10 years ago, the great white hope was that digital was going to deliver growth, these new digital channels will, would deliver the growth and do something different that the legacy media or communications executions weren't doing. Was that a false uh, economy, that, that whole argument around digital and growth?
1: Oh, I, I, I don't think so. I think uh, there's um, my last role at Unilever was to set up the uh, global innovation center around what we called at the time interactive marketing. Um, when was that how long ago we started that in 1997 um, and uh, we led the first big push 50 million dollars deals with AOL and MSN Um, at the time even then uh, we saw digital as a new channel and if you have a new channel I think you're talking about substitution of spend it's about the same pie but different ways people only have so many hours in the day and they're going to be engaged through one channel or the other that's the comms discussion and you have to be as good as everyone else in that, otherwise you lose out. But what we were also focusing on right from day one, and I think that's what we are now talking about when you say growth, is that there was an opportunity to create new means of providing value. A cooking brand that just sells you dry soup to make uh, good food is is, is one part. But if that same brand that has a 50-year heritage of actually helping uh, mothers and fathers Cook Better with Recipes, there was one that I worked on once with a database of 7,000 recipes. If that moves into videos, because people these days don't know how to cook. Right, how to. Exactly, and you're providing a service now that builds onto a product, that's value creation. And that's going to add up in either brand loyalty or more usage and frequency of use, which is growth or actually in new people coming in because they th- didn't realize that this was a franchise that could help them. So I, I do think, um, I, an example that I used at the uh, AANA uh, last week was U-Haul. U-Haul, um, you know, in America, I don't know if they're here in well, Australia. Well, in Australia, it's
0: literally, it's a trailer hire that you get from your local ser- exactly. service station.
1: Yeah, well, it's no different in the US. So I had to recently move some furniture from, uh, from New York City upstate to my uh, weekend cottage, and uh, I went to the U-Haul site, but what amazed me and really impressed me was that not only could I rent the truck there, as I did, but on top of that, there was a whole uh, spectrum of services where, uh, which included, for example, them sending me boxes a week in advance so I could pack the stuff that I wanted to move. Very smart, through the mail, arrived a week before. Now, here's a marketer that has gone through the trouble to s- sort of elevate themselves from the... Well, they need a truck. I don't need a truck. I need my furniture moved. But what that says to me is marketers that are just selling product, I would say are lazy. You just haven't gone far enough.
0: Well, you hold another good segue into how you define markets because you're also, um, you're also quite stroppy around this notion, this myth of market share.
1: Well, look, I mean, obviously, if, 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 you've, if you're increasing market share, you're doing something better than your competitors. So that's good. I'm just saying it's not enough. It's, it's, it's absolutely not enough. Because what is the definition of the category? I'm ashamed to say that uh, in my second Unilever job, I was responsible for something that Nielsen reported back as tomato sauce in plastic bottles that are packed on their top. Upside-down bottles, they were called. And our market share was 83%. I was very satisfied with myself. Except nowhere on the list was Heinz, because they're packed in glass. And they happen to sell about 15 times more ketchup than I did. Uh, so somewhere in the past, a marketer had made themselves very satisfied with a market definition that made absolutely no sense. And, and this is what we actually identify as a characteristic of overperformers. So we didn't say this yet, but uh, uh, we're doing this work uh, with the Institute to, to work with chief marketing officers worldwide to help them... Uh, contribute stronger to the business growth strategy. And it's based on learning among uh, 500 CMOs and CEOs that we've interviewed and uh, several thousand uh, marketers worldwide across 73 markets that participated in our online survey. And one of the key characteristics is actually where everything starts is in the market definition. And what we see is that over-performers... We tried to look for a term that captures the the spirit of this and we came up with abundant market definitions. They elevate and and, and based on consumer insights and based on real understanding of the deeper needs, define their category Uh, in a much broader sense. I'll give you a really practical example. There was a hair care company. They sold shampoo and conditioners like almost every other hair care company. And they were in negotiations. They were one of the biggest in the world, actually. I can't say who they are, but uh, you can guess, I guess. They have about a 30% market share. And um, the leader there of e-commerce was describing to us how in their negotiations with Amazon, which is where they also sell, they were telling Amazon that they had about a 30% market share. And, and an interesting uh, discussion followed because the the Amazon uh, contact sort of looked down at their numbers and said, hmm... We actually have very different numbers. And not a 30 is what they were saying. (laughs) Exactly. They said, uh, according to our books, you're about an 11. And of course, uh, there was a lot of confusion. And it turned out that, you know, Amazon did what actually makes complete sense and said, hair care to us is shampoos and conditioners, but it's also blow dryers and hair curlers. And uh, there's no way that you can argue with that. It's just that you know this company had created a definition with, uh, with guidelines. But to their credit, they then went back and said, okay, if we start playing that game and really start defining the hair care market, what else is included? And they went so broad that, for example, it now includes YouTube video channels where people are invited to upload their hairstyle of the week. Millions of people do this because that actually is about expressing my originality, my creativity of myself, which is an incredibly important driver in hair care. And when they started to define their market share as sort of percentage of money spent, they got a a, a percentage which was only 3% market share. Now, why is that important? Because I think when you drive to work every day and you have a 30% market share, like me with that tomato sauce, you kind of think about how do I defend it? You get a sort of closed mindset around what do I do to protect this, which is the market share discussion. Whereas if you have 3%, no one would argue that you can't take that to 5 The question becomes... Well, you'll be would-
0: restless, won't you?
1: Exactly. You're yeah. restless. You're, you're excited about the growth opportunity. And you start looking for partners that actually can help uh, get you into the channels... That, uh, that you're not active in, and, and, and so forth. It's a completely different mindset. Um, I'll give a really concrete example. Mars, which I respect, because they put their money where their mouth was. Uh, these people are, uh, you know, they sell pet food, and they used to define their category in terms of food, until research told them that there isn't a pet owner in the world that can't sleep because they're worried about whether they're feeding their cat or dog the right things. That's just not what keeps us awake at night. But the health of our pets is... And they changed their own remit, their purpose as a company, to pet care. And they put money where their mouth is. They bought, first in America and then in Europe, the biggest veterinarian change available. Six billion dollars worth of investment just with one acquisition in the US. So they are a big player there now. And now they're developing innovations like collars that actually monitors pets' behaviors and predict health problems. And uh, it, it's just really exciting to see.
0: Well, there's a good example. Well, one, Mars is private. Two, it's a big company, which is an exception to what you talk about in some cases around consumer goods sector, where 97% of the growth, you say, is coming from smaller companies. 3% is being, in the category, is being delivered by the big end of
1: town. What is that saying? What that, if anything, proves to me is that there is such um, resistance to change. In big companies, it's actually another driver because this uh, this IRG worked identified ultimately seven building blocks of real growth. The second one, and uh, and you segue beautifully into it, is um, a willingness to work with new business models. And what we're seeing is that big companies, because they're used to making money a certain way, uh, over time there's a natural resistance to changing that. And I mean, you don't have to look very far uh, if you look at Coke and their recent acquisition of Costa Coffee. And you look at Pepsi and their recent acquisition of SodaStream. Both are very logical from a consumer perspective, even from a brand perspective. You can see why they would want to do that. The interesting thing is, the talks to do that inside those companies have taken years. Why? There's such resistance. There's a a myth, if you like, that if I've got a great idea, but I can't sort of communicate it inside the company uh, inside the typical ROI spend Excel sheet that people use to evaluate investments, then I might as well not even talk about it. And, and, and the honest truth is the real growth is in uncomfortable places. It's going to take different business models. It might take partnerships where we franchise the brand to somebody that's providing a service. Well, if that's what it takes, what are you going to do? You're going to sit back? McDonald's didn't have a delivery service for the longest time. So what was the result? Everybody else was delivering McDonald's and it arrived cold and late. So finally, two years ago, they stepped back and said, no, we need to own that. That's a very relevant channel. People want their food delivered. We want McDonald's quality. So now they own it everywhere. It came and it is out of HQ. It's never happened before to every country around the world. Six months from now, you will have a delivery service. Now tell us how. Here's an interesting stat uh, that I'd like to get your take on. In Australia, government
0: and corporations business are the biggest spenders on consulting firms per capita in the world. What does that say about both, and it's just not at a marketing level by the way, that's right at the top, digital transformation, transformation projects, but
1: biggest spenders per capita. Your first hunch, what does it tell you? So this is an uninformed opinion. Um, I've been thinking quite a lot since I landed uh, in Australia you uh, I, I personally always make it a, 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 my mission to quickly understand the psyche of the country and and a few things I've noticed. One, at the moment in Australia there is a um, there's a real sense of um, something bad is going to happen very soon. People are hunkering down, shutting down the hatches uh, and uh, and, and, it, and it seems to be an echo chamber of, of doom and gloom. Uh, two, uh, i I understand that uh, Australia has done incredibly well on the back of uh, China's growth and um, and and now there's this real sense that that's gonna hurt um, but three, and it's something I just don't see and I don't understand why and it might be part of the answer to your question, which is that there's this sense that we don't have the answers here they need to come from somewhere else and uh, and there's this you know, sort of, um, uh, and uh, partly I I might be to blame flying over here and pretending to talk about things that I know about. Um, This sense that other people somewhere else probably know better. And my sense is that there is this huge opportunity for Australia to actually just leverage what you've got. And I mean in terms of thought leadership, in terms of understanding. You've got so many international companies here. Why do you need consultants to come and tell you stuff? when actually all the connections are here. You've got so many highly educated people here and you've got huge growth economies. Okay, they're not growing double digits anymore, but they're growing and they're, they want to understand how to expand internationally. And you are relatively close. Uh, my sense is there's a real opportunity there, but there's something holding back in the psyche that we don't have all the answers ourselves. It's it's a really interesting one. I, I want
0: to come back to the really interesting point you make about the larger companies. Now you cited Unilever, I think, is a good example where they're buying a whole bunch of uh, smaller companies direct-to-consumer brands and they're leaving them alone. Uh, really, No, letting,
1: no, no. They're not leaving them alone. They're not
0: enforcing their way of working on them. Exactly.
1: In fact, the opposite. They're inviting them in to come change things. Right. And I think that's the big important difference in mindset. Look, there is hundreds of case studies of big companies buying small companies and smothering them to death. Unilever really took a different track. They said, uh, we welcome diversity of thought. We want these founders of these small companies, and I know of at least 11 small companies, we want them to stay around and actually change our company, help us change, help us become uh, smarter, more entrepreneurial, more diverse in our thinking. And so they've invited lots of people over to their organization and made them important, actually given them roles uh, where they're pairing up, for example, the people of uh, Pucketee or Sir Kensington's uh, Mayonnaise with the owners of big brands uh, that uh, that are multi-billion dollar brands and getting them to learn from each other. And it's really interesting what comes out of that.
0: It's interesting you say that, Mark, because um, we had uh, the executive creative director who's an Australian expat from the Dollar Shave Club out um, a few months ago. Yeah. Now really interesting because they did something crazy, crazy, which is they started advertising on Pornhub to blokes. Really? Now, yes. <laughs> and so he said and I said oh, how I did you, How like did this. Unilever go with yeah. managing that? And he said, To their credit, they leave us alone. He said, We got we got one email from from Global somewhere going, I saw what you did there and it's <laughs> And it stopped.
1: how did he see that?
0: (laughs) Fair point. I was told about it, by the way. Yeah, of course. (laughs) But um, the point was there that, to your point, uh, they are being left alone to do what they do. And in fact, I said, so is there shared learnings? He said, there's all sorts of stuff going. It's a really good example. But it gets us to this point, again, about resistance. This is not a marketing problem. This is an organizational problem right at the top to be able to have the preparedness to do and act like that across and shake shake things up.
1: It's so true. I mean, uh, I happen to have gone to with the guy at Unilever that bought the dollar Shave Club. Right. So I know how excited he was and how reverent of of the company, the psyche, the innovativeness of the company uh, he was all along and it's a mindset. It's a real mindset of this will help us become better too. And that's rare. I mean I've been a consultant after Unilever for 14 years, I ran a global marketing consultancy. And uh, the number of companies that basically start their partnership conversations with, we want to be the main partner, you're going to do things our way, and uh, no good things come out of that. Uh, the future is for companies that uh, are portray, exude, if you like, to all the small people in garages, developing ideas everywhere, come to us because we'll make you better and we'll respect how you are. Now, of course, back office, there's lots of stuff that these small companies can actually learn from and benefit from from these very large ones. So that's how they roll out the Dollar Shave Club globally now. That's, that's good for everyone. Typically, what I always find is that small companies are run with people, by people with purpose. And they want, they have a mission, they're on a mission, they're on a quest, and they want to do that in as many places as possible. So in theory, such a partnership actually has a real win-win. What hasn't happened in the past is that the big company has said, and we want to learn from you because we need to change. And you show me a big company that doesn't need to change fundamentally in the next five years, and um, and I'll give you a, a pint.
0: I'll have take two. There's a really interesting point that you make towards the end of your presentation, which is around humanized growth. If you think about the narrative that's going on in the market, at least this market, it's all about data. It's all about getting data, 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 and it's the driver. Uh, you have a different view. You, you actually want to bring back humanity a bit, bring back the the instinct the and, and, and some smarts that comes out of the individual. Talk through that a little bit.
1: So the first thing is that, indeed, across all of our building blocks, there's one that really is the umbrella to everything, and it's this concept of humanized growth. What we see over-performers do is move very firmly beyond solely financial metrics of success and actually saying, listen, we live in a world where it's just not the capital markets, our investors, but it's also our colleagues, it's our customers, and it's the communities we serve that are key stakeholders of our success. And we see that only those companies that embrace all four of those stakeholders are going to be growing in the future. And, and, and by the way this is not a mark the Swan Aaron's opinion this is um, um, the 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 uh, CEO of the world's biggest uh, institutional investor BlackRock last right, year yes wrote all CEOs and then just a few weeks ago uh, the top 200 CEOs of the world the business roundtable declared publicly that they're restating their purpose as companies to not just serve uh, shareholders right. But also those other communities. Now, here's my my comment on Australia. I uh, was uh, very disappointed to see in the newspaper that uh, your government was actually telling CEOs in Australia not to bother with all these social fads. That this was the business council. This
0: was the business council.
1: It was the business council agreeing with the government. Right that that should not be what CEOs are doing as opposed to the research here in Australia that says that 75% of consumers think that companies with all the influence and tentacles that they have across society actually can help make this a better place to live, learn, work and make a living. So I, I think this is something where um, the political and institutional um, yeah, reservations about this may need to change.
0: Just to be clear, BlackRock is the largest investment fund.
1: And the biggest. uh, And what they're saying to people is, look, you can drive short-term profit by being aggressive. And remember, it's always the short-term people that are the loudest, that want the results for next year or this year, preferably. But most of the money in the markets is your and my pension funds. And those people want sustained, repeatable, long-term results. And what these people are saying, and now CEOs are reacting to, is, look, to do that, you have to have permission to grow. You need society around you to want you to grow. And that means taking all stakeholders, not just your shareholders, in perspective. Now, this is a huge opportunity, I think, for chief marketing officers, for marketing in general, because companies now, perhaps not immediately in Australia, but I think it will come, companies now are going to have to truly understand the underlying needs of all of those shareholders. And they're going to have to create value propositions to all those shareholders or stakeholders rather now who is the best person equipped to help the company think that through i think it's the marketer it's what we've always done and hopefully it's what we'll always be doing it sounds like that it
0: will require a mindset shift from from marketers themselves to to change how they think they should operate right though is is it there is the capability there now
1: i think with some marketers probably most that's how we were educated we're always looking around us and then we're looking in all directions in terms of who is expecting what, who needs what. It's the natural inclination of a marketer to do that on behalf of the company. Now, have they all done it in the last uh, few years? Probably not, and, and quite a few will uh, need to take that perspective. But they're better equipped than everyone else in the boardroom to do this. You know, the investor relations people, they know the financial investors, but they don't know anything about customers and communities. The corporate communications people, they know another piece but they don't know the other pieces. And I think the marketer is the natural leader in this area.
0: So let's wrap it up with what uh for the we know what the, the agenda and remit should be for the for the new world marketer. How do agencies and media companies plug into this? Can they contribute or is it just part of the communications element? And then let's wrap up with what um, what the Institute for Real Growth uh, can do for, as part of this uh, in the Australian market to con- contribute.
1: Well, it's a fair question. And, uh, and, and you mentioned in the introduction that uh, our founders include agency holding companies, research holding companies, as well as uh, uh, new channels, if you like. Uh, I think the big thing is there, realize that marketers are going to need help navigating this space, and, and it's going to take a village to do this well. Uh, I also think that none of them, because we are uh, not-for-profit, we're independent, none of them claim or want to claim that they have all the answers. So I commend them for, for, for taking a leadership role here, a really a, an industry perspective, leadership role, to say let's figure this out together and we'll be in the room with you, not to tell you anything, but to learn with you and, and, uh, and, and, and actually, together, we'll get there. So
0: you've got Google and Facebook and their other media companies. How do they get their head around this? Are they just simply
1: providing a communications channel or can they do something more? Well, it's funny you say that because hopefully in those companies, there are marketers that are thinking exactly about that. Are they selling a product or are they actually fulfilling a need? Right. Everyone in the value chain needs to take the perspective of what are people really trying to do? And then from their core competency, work to a partner ecosystem that says, now here's the solution that I can provide. And here's the partners I need for that. So I haven't thought it through for every partner that's in the... In the, in the Supply in the, chain. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, but that's their role. Yeah. They have to step back and, and, and step up to take that growth perspective.
0: Great point. Now, the Institute for Real Growth. Give us your plug.
1: All right. So the Institute for Real Growth is providing very senior marketing leaders a program that consists of three sessions, one's around the why, one's around the what, and one's around the how, um, to help these marketers think through, benchmark first to identify the opportunity gaps, benchmark themselves versus the profile that we're developing with Spencer Stewart of the growth CMO of the future, identify the gaps there, and then across a journey of uh, nine months and three sessions of two days, they actually develop a strategy to address the main opportunities and challenges. The first uh, sessions are being run in Shanghai, in Oxford and in New York and possibly in the future also in Australia. And then the last of the three sessions we bring everybody together uh, in the days before the Cannes Lions Festival um, in France, uh, which will be very exciting and uh, it will include um, a competitive component for people providing uh, and, and actually selling their, uh, their growth plan to the rest of the crowd. When does this program start? The first sessions kick off in New York November 4th, November 18th in Oxford and the next sessions start in February uh, and March uh, in Shanghai and again in those cities. We don't have dates for Australia yet but there was a lot of uh, interest from the uh, audience. I think the uh, founding partners are probably thinking how do we do this here and we'll help them launch an Australian uh, programme if that makes sense.
0: What a fascinating conversation and massively necessary. I mean, this, this discourse, this discussion is exactly uh, where the gaps in this market are. And Mark DeSwan-Aarons, safe travels and let's talk again. Thank you.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search MI3 Audio Edition on Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button to get a free notification every time we release a new episode.